these for those of you who have been growing and maturing in your understanding of doctrine and wish to serve the Lord in some capacity at Preston City Bible Church. We have a need for someone in the two to threes. I think we have uh, Esther's volunteer, but we need someone to spell her. So we're trying to split that up with the two to three-year-olds. And then we also, that's it during the second hour now, and then also we need someone in the fifth to seventh grade uh, second hour as well teaching there, and that is a very important position. And then we have a bittersweet announcement, and that is there's also a third opportunity that has come up because uh, Laura Birch has been hired away by some lucky firm down in New York and has a real adult job now. <laughs> so she will be departing within a couple of weeks to go uh, take on her new assignment down in New York. And that means that not only are we losing her to New York, but we are losing a good Sunday school teacher. So that's three slots open, and they are open now, which means the need is immediate, and we need to take care of that. The other announcement is, of course, Jim mentioned that this week, Wednesday night, is on Tuesday night, just to confuse you some more. Midweek Bible class is Tuesday night at 7.30. Now, put this on your calendar. I believe it is Wednesday night, the 16th of December. That Bible class will be moved to Thursday night. That will be in the bulletin. Al will make sure we get the dates right on that, but I believe it is the 16th, and that will move to Thursday night that particular week. I will be in Dallas, Texas, attending the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group, which is a dispensational study think tank and uh, focusing on a lot of eschatology issues and exegetical issues. And uh, there are people on the, uh, just to impress you with people I, I associate with sometimes, <laughs> there are people on that pre-trib study group like John Walvoord, Charles Wyrie, Dwight Pentecost, Tim LaHaye, and a few other names that are <laughs> known to others. I was on the uh, initial, uh, committee, initial committee. I've never been. So I'm looking forward to uh, attending this year and seeing what goes on at the pre-trip study group. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor Height nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Before we begin our study, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer, so if confession is necessary, you can take care of that. And then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we are thankful that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the light of the world, that in him was life, and his life was the light of the world, and that you have caused your light to be shed abroad in our hearts, that we might come to understand the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that that entails, that you have saved us by your grace, you have regenerated us, you have given us new life, and you have also revealed to us the truth, the principles, the teachings, the doctrines that we need to live life in a way that glorifies you. Now, Father, as we study and continue to study what our Lord teaches here in the Gospel of John, we pray that we can understand these things, how they relate to our lives, that we might be challenged to pursue spiritual maturity based upon your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, verse 1. And starting this morning, we come to an entirely different section of the Gospel of John. There is a major shift that takes place in the thematic structure of the Gospel as John wrote it starting with this particular chapter. Up to this point, Jesus has been presenting His messianic claims to the entire nation of Israel. His ministry has been public. Now it is private. Before this, it was preparatory. Now it is personal to the disciples. It is for believers only. And it is at this point that Jesus is going to do several very interesting things in the midst of the Passover celebration with His disciples that takes place the night before He goes to the cross. Beginning here, we see a crucial vocabulary shift that takes place. And it is that vocabulary shift that helps us understand the, the uh, topical shift, the doctrinal shifts that take place in this particular Uh, gospel. Up to this point, we have seen an emphasis on things like light. Jesus is the light of the world. Twice he said that, I am the light of the world. He has said on two or three different occasions, while the light is with you, respond, for it will will leave shortly. We are reminded of passages that talk about life. In him was life, and that life was the light of of the world. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His unique Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Life has been a major theme. And we have seen hints of a word love. For God so loved the world. These are key concepts. Another key concept that we have focused on is the issue of judgment. Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world. In other words, the point of the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, was not to judge or condemn mankind. It was to die on the cross. But the very presence of the second person of the Trinity, incarnate in the flesh, in human history, created a crisis. And that word crisis comes from the Greek word krisis, which means judgment. It created a crisis situation that forced people to make a decision for or against the gospel. And thus there is a a, a sense of judgment. Now let's see how some of these words are used. The word light in the Greek, phos, and its various forms, occurs a total of 23 times. So 
let's say, 1 through 12, and then 13 through 17, which is also called the Upper Room Discourse, and I'm including within that chapter 17, which is Jesus Christ's High Priestly Prayer. Incidentally, for those of you who may not know, the passage in, in uh, Matthew and Luke that is normally called the Lord's Prayer was when Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, how to pray, and that should more accurately be called the disciples' prayer, the prayer that is our Father who art in heaven. It includes the phrase, forgive us our sins. That Jesus would never say that. That's not the Lord's Prayer. In fact, to say that is almost blasphemy. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer where the Lord prays to the Father for the church. Light occurs 23 times in the first first 12 chapters. But after chapter 12, it occurs zero times. It is no longer the issue. The light has come. And as Jesus said in the um, previous chapter, I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness And he warns them that the light is not with them for long and that they must respond quickly. And they do not. And so now it goes from the public light and revelation of Christ into into darkness. Then we have the another word. Life. Life. This in the Greek is the word zoe. And this is used 32 times in the first 12 chapters. And yet, after after 13.1, it is only used four times. Then we have another word, love. And this really shows us the thematic shift here. It is used six times in the first 12 chapters of either man's love for God or, or the son's love for God or God's love for mankind, for God so loved the world. It is used two times of man loving the wrong thing. Men love darkness rather than the light, or men love human approval. Uh, two times of man loving the wrong thing. It's only used eight times in those first 12 chapters, only six for a positive sense of love. But it now occurs 27 times in the next chapters, from chapters 13 through 17, an average of five and a half times a chapter. So clearly we can say that a major theme we will be developing, a major doctrine we will be learning about in chapters 13 through 17 relates to the doctrine of love. And then judging, the word chrysis or one of its forms, judging occurs 29 times in the first 12 chapters and only four times in chapters 13 through 17. So this shows that there is a tremendous thematic shift as Jesus goes from a public ministry where he is revealing himself as Messiah to the nation to a private ministry where now that light is shielded from the people and the emphasis now is on God's love and for God's love to his people, the church, and what God is graciously providing for believers in relationship to his love Not only God's love for believers, but believers' love for God the Father and believers' love for one another. So this shows the difference. Up to this point, we have seen that the depths of God's love has been evidenced in the revelation of God in Christ. Notice it is an emphasis on grace in God taking an action. 
Love is expressed in an action, not in terms of emotion or sentiment or warm fuzzy. It is, how do we know the love of God? It is because it is objective in space-time history. He gave His unique Son to die on the cross. Paul echoes this in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in contrast to a lot of the strange and odd thinking and discussion that goes on in our culture, in our society, in relationship to love, the Bible is going to say that love is inherently objective, not subjective. It is not to be thought of as simply an emotion, a feeling, a a warm, fuzzy sense. It is clear, objective, and knowable, and measurable by certain actions. We Love in the Bible is not some existential encounter with God that leaves us with some inherent emotion where we can say, oh, I know God loves me because of how I feel. It, we know God's love only because we have the self-revelation of God in words and sentences in the Bible. That's how we know God's love. We don't know God's love through some sort of emotional experience or feeling. We know God's love because the Bible tells us about it. One, in fact, one theologian said that the, the summation of everything in the Bible is, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. Not because I feel like it, because I went to church this morning and I sang some songs and choruses and went home with a uplifted spirit because of the content of the Word of God. So that is why we emphasize the teaching of God's Word. And now when we come to John 13, Jesus is going to teach some things in this chapter that tell us about the reality of God's love. What we have seen before is the revelation of God's love in Christ, and now we have the explication, the explanation of the reality of the love of God, that this is something divorced from emotion. It's not some inner feeling or warm fuzzy, but is an objective revelation that God has told us. It's something concrete. It's something unchanging, something immutable, something we can go to again and again to stabilize us when we're going through emotional swings because of the, the turbulence in our lives. We can go to the never-changing Word of God and read the promise of God and know that our inner feelings and emotions can be stabilized by eternal, immutable truth. So we come to John 1, 3, or John 13, verses 1 through 3, and we see the introduction to this particular section. Starts, let me just read those three verses. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them, to the end. Now that introduces the theme of this section. It is going to talk about how Jesus loved his own and how he loved them and persevered in that love all the way to the end of his life. Verse 2, And during the supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand, 
in that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking on a towel, he girded himself about. Now, we'll just stop there. We'll hopefully get further than that this morning. But we need to go back and look at the, this introduction a little bit. What's going on here? Twice, John emphasizes that Jesus knows exactly what is going on. There is an emphasis in this, these first three verses of Jesus' sovereignty, of the sovereignty of God, divine control of human history. Jesus Christ controls history. The events that are going, going to take place here, if we read this account without looking at this introduction, we might think that, oops, things are out of control. Judas is going to betray Jesus. He's going to go off to the, to the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, and he's going to sell him out, and it's all out of control, and poor Jesus. But what we see by Paul's, I mean by John's emphasis in these first three verses is that Jesus knows exactly what's taking place. He's in complete control of the situation. And everything is working itself out according to the plan and purposes of God in fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. So John is telling us to be careful. Don't misinterpret what is going on here. Don't think of poor Jesus, things are out of control. We must focus on the sovereignty of Christ, that he controls history, and that there are important things going on in this whole scenario. And as he begins to teach his disciples and introduce them to the doctrinal principles that will govern their lives during the new church age. Now, verse 1. It begins with a temporal clause. And now, before the Feast of the Passover, begins with a conjunction of transition, uh, simply uh, a debt now clause. And we have a temporal clause introduced by the preposition pro, P-R-O. Now there's a bit of a problem here. Clearly, the temporal preposition indicates that, that the feast itself has, has not begun. And for that reason, some people think that what this means is that this is before the feast takes place. Now, in Jewish understanding, on the 14th to 15th, it is on the 15th of, uh, of Nisan, or Nisan, really, I think is the correct pronunciation, N-I-S-A-N, which is roughly comparable to our March-April. It's the first month on their festival calendar. The 15th of Nisan begins at, at, um, of, uh, begins at sundown. We'll get into some of these details in a minute, but for this standard practice of, of the Jews in Judea, it began at sundown uh, and extended to sundown the next night, and, and so they had to have the crucifix uh, or the sacrifice of the Paschal lambs on the afternoon of the 14th. Remember, the 14th began sundown the night before. We've got to change the way we think about time now because we think day, a day goes from midnight to midnight. But in Judea, they thought that a day began at, at sundown and then went to sundown. So on the night of the 14th began at sundown the night before. And so on the next afternoon, just before sundown, just before the day ends, the Passover lambs were sacrificed. 
Now, the first day of the 15th is really the beginning of a long feast that lasted eight days called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, we're going to go over this so much in the next probably four or five months as we go through this whole upper room discourse and the crucifixion episode and everything that you're probably going to be sick of this. So right now you're going, I don't understand. Believe me, we'll all get this clear and you will get to the point where if I prick you, you will bleed chronology. I'm not going to give it to you all at once. I'm not that sadistic. It's almost more than I can stand to deal with it all at once. You have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, all of this is important because it is Old Testament feasts, and everything in the Old Testament feast was designed to teach certain things through a very concrete visual method, doctrine about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is what is called typology. And typology is simply representative. Example comes from the Greek word tupos, meaning example, that there are certain things that mirror ultimate fulfillment in the life of Christ down the road. And just as a lamb without spot or blemish was taken and roasted on the fire for a Passover meal, that is to tell certain things about Jesus and his sinless humanity. That's why it had to be without spot or blemish and that it was a sacrifice that portrays the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. In fact, when they roasted the lamb, they would take two skewers and they would run them perpendicular to each other through the body of the, the lamb so that it would appear as if it were on a cross. Now, they didn't know why they did it that way, but even that portrays something about the death of Jesus who John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this Paschal lamb was the lamb that was slain and eaten the night before they left the slavery of Egypt and is a picture of how at salvation we leave slavery to the sin nature. So every aspect of this is very important in what it reveals and what it displays. So we have to look at some of these things in a little more precision. The conundrum here is that some people think that before the feast means that, that the, the dinner here is not, is not the Passover meal. But it's clearly the night before he goes to the cross. Now, if you compare that with what is going on in, in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they clearly portray this meal as a Passover meal. The problem is, chronologically, is you have sunrise to sunrise, maybe a sunrise to sunrise of the 14th, sunrise to sunrise on the 15th. Now, excuse me, sunset to sunset on the 14th, sunset to sunset for the 15th. Now, if... This is the Passover meal right here. Just after sunset on the 15th begins, you have your Passover meal. And Jesus is crucified in the afternoon of the 14th. And the night before He has a meal, how can this be the Passover? Because the lamb that they ate for a Passover meal was required by Mosaic law to be sacrificed under certain conditions in the temple precinct on the 14th. 
by law. So no Jew in his right mind would ever just think of, take any old lamb and have it for dinner on the, for, and call it a Passover meal. You just couldn't do that. So you have a chronological problem. If Christ is to die on the cross in fulfillment of Old Testament type, see, between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on the afternoon of the 14th, the Paschal Lamb was sacrificed in the temple precinct by the high priest. At the same time, Jesus is on the cross, bearing the sin of the world. God the Father is imputing to Him the sin of the entire world. The high priest, in typological reflection, is in the, uh, in the temple, sacrificing the Paschal Lamb and imputing to it the sins of the nation. You see, it's precise. God doesn't make mistakes. God is very detailed and very precise. And we're going to see some remarkable things about how this works itself out. Now, what we see in verse 13 is now, is really has to be understood in terms of the main, the main verb, which means we have to go down and see that what the main verb is. We, and it's a very difficult construction in the Greek. It's a, you have several participial phrases piled up on top of each other. But the main verb really doesn't come until verse 4. Everything before that is either a participle or infinitive. And the main verb is, verse 4, rose from supper. Jesus rose from supper. Before the Passover the feast, Jesus knowing. That's another participle. All of this precedes, because it's a perfect participle, it precedes the action of the main verb. And all that this is saying basically is that before the Passover began, Jesus knew that His time had come. Before this, Jesus is fully aware of the significance of this particular Passover. We saw in John chapter 12 that when the Gentiles came to Him and they wanted to talk to Him, that that was like a signal to Him that the Jews have gone on negative volition. They had all this emotional religious fervor at the triumphal entry, but it didn't mean anything. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, showing that He knew that their... Uh, emotional response was not true, a true acceptance of him as Messiah, as the Savior. And the Gentiles coming to him showed that the Jews had rejected him, but the Gentiles were now open, and so it was time for him to go to the cross. So all of this indicates why he knew, and he comes here and it says, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that the hour had come. So before it all came, before all of this started, and sometimes the term feast refers to this entire period of time, so before we got here, before the 14th, Jesus is fully aware of the significance of all these events, and he knows that on Passover, on the afternoon of the 14th, he's going to be going to the cross. And so what John is telling us that is that because Jesus knew that his time was up and that he would depart out of this world, John says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. What John is saying to us is that Jesus has a, an objective expression of his love for the disciples. And how is that love for his disciples expressed? He is going to teach them many things in the next two or three chapters about how to survive and how to live the, what will be the, called the Christian life in the age to come. So how do we know Jesus loves his disciples? He teaches them 
doctrine. How does a pastor express his love for the congregation? By teaching them doctrine. We live in an age of psychotherapy and a pastor is supposed to love their congregation by a lot of overt sympathy and hand-holding and putting their arms around. You go to some churches and the pastor will go around and hug everybody. And all of these things that just buy into a lot of sentimentality. And they're nice and they're warm fuzzy. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But that's not how you measure a pastor's love. It's not how we measure our Lord's love for us. We measure our Lord's love because He taught us. That's a sign of His love for us as He taught the disciples. And how does a pastor express his love? By studying and studying and studying and learning the Word of God so that he can accurately communicate and teach the Word of God. And the worst thing a pastor can do is not study and not teach. Because if they're not studying and teaching, then the sheep can't grow. And if the sheep can't grow, then that is not love. That is spiritual murder. And that's what's happened in most congregations is pastors are starving their sheep but they're making them feel good about it. And they're just so warm and fuzzy, but they have no content. And so we always have to remind ourselves that that is the ultimate expression of love because the bottom line is the sheep need to grow to spiritual maturity and they can only do that on the basis of being fed spiritually. Now, a lot of, as I indicated already, there's been a lot of controversy over whether or not the Last Supper here is described in John 13 is truly a Passover meal. And there are 14 reasons why this must be a Passover meal. The first is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically state that this was a Passover meal. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptics like synonym because they're very similar to one another. It's a technical word. Uh, Synoptic Gospels, they state this is a Passover meal. This is found in Matthew 26, verses 2, 17 through 19. Matthew 26, 2 and 17 through 19. Also in Mark, chapter 14, verses 1 and 12 through 16. Mark 14, 1 and 12 through 16. Also in Luke, chapter 22, verse 1, 8, 13, and 15. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all state this was a Passover meal. Secondly, it follows the procedures and policies that are stated in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 16, 7. It is, takes place within the walls of Jerusalem, despite the fact of the crushing crowds. Remember I said, according to Josephus, there could have been as many as two and a half million people crowding into Jerusalem, which normally had a population of about 100,000. And so you have all of these Jews coming to celebrate the annual, this was one of three annual pilgrimage festivals when all the males of Israel, whether they lived there or not, were required to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. Point number three, the upper room was clearly made available to them in keeping with the Passover custom. So room was made available. Everybody had to eat. In fact, what the Jews did was they expanded the city limits during Passover. They went out, and normally the city limits was just outside the walls, but they widened it a little bit so that they could get everybody into the, the city limits. And people would make homes and places available for all of the pilgrims coming in so they could fulfill the Passover requirements. Point four, the meal is eaten at night. 
Normally the Jews wouldn't eat a, a major meal at night. Uh, it's an unusual time in Jewish custom. So this too indicates that there's something special about this meal. Matthew 26:20, 20, Mark 14:17, John 13:30, and 1 Corinthians 11:23. Fifth, in custom with the SOP, the standard operating procedure of the Passover meal, Jesus limited himself to a rather small group of the twelve rather than eating with a larger group. And normally you would put a group together, a family of ten or twelve people, to eat one Passover lamb. That's why when Josephus records the fact that there were about 250,000 lambs sacrificed on Passover day, you can multiply that by ten to get the number of people in Jerusalem. Normally there were ten or twelve people per, per lamb. Sixth, they ate in a reclining posture, and a reclining posture was reserved for special occasions. They didn't sit at a chair, sit at a table like we do. The tables were low, and they reclined. They, uh, kids would like this because they like to just lean all over the table. They would just lie down alongside the table, and it was a very relaxed posture. And this indicates a very special occasion. Point seven. The meal followed Levitical ritual purification procedures, which is what we'll see in John 13. This meal follows specific Levitical purification procedures. Ritual purification procedures. Point eight, Jesus broke the bread during the meal rather than at the beginning of the meal. Matthew 26, 26 and Mark 14, 22. This follows the procedure in the Passover meal. Nine, they drank red wine which was also a sign of a special occasion. So so the reclining posture, drinking red wine, uh, the meal being eaten at night, all of these indicate that this is a special kind of meal, a special circumstance. Point number ten, some of the disciples thought that Judas left after Jesus uh, puts the sop and gives it to Judas and tells Judas to go about his business. Judas leaves. The other disciples didn't hear the interchange, and they thought Judas was leaving to purchase items for the feast or perhaps to, uh, to take money to the poor. Either, either one would indicate that, that um, the first indicates that if he has to go purchase items, that would indicate that he couldn't do it the next day, which was called the day of preparation, and so the, the stores weren't open, and he couldn't have gotten anything. So they thought that Judas had to leave to go get some more, some more groceries, basically. Verse, uh, point 11, some of the disciples thought that Judas left to give money to the poor. This was another custom observed on the Passover. Uh, John 13:29 indicates this, that they would, you would give money to the poor. Uh, the twelfth point, the meal ended with the singing of a hymn, which was typical of a Passover meal. They always ended, ended by singing the Passover Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118. Point 13, Jesus did not return to Bethany, which was outside of the Jerusalem city limits where he had been staying. He instead went to the Mount of Olives that night. If he had gone to Bethany, he would have left the confines of Jerusalem. That's where Passover had to be held. He had to stay there. And then finally, 14, the use and interpretation of the elements in terms of the Lord's table was in keeping with the Passover ritual. So for these 14 reasons, it becomes really clear that this meal is a Passover meal. Now, having said all of that, we recognize that it is a Passover meal. How do we harmonize this chronologically? John 18.28 makes the statement that after Jesus is arrested, John 
after Jesus is arrested, the next morning, he's arrested and they take him to the the praetorium to take him to, to Pilate, that the Jews would not enter the chambers, the praetorium chambers. Why? In order that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. See, if they had gone into this Gentile uh, quarter, that would have defiled them, and they couldn't eat the Passover. So that indicates that the Jews, at that point, the next afternoon, had not eaten a Passover meal yet. Because if they had, then they wouldn't worry about being defiled. So, if... This meal, the night before his Passover, and these Jews the next afternoon had not eaten Passover. How do we put these things together? This is the chronological conundrum that we must resolve. And there are several solutions that people have come up with over the years in order to try to uh, harmonize this. And here are the solutions. The first one is, is, did Jesus just simply eat the Passover meal early? Did he just come along and say, okay, guys, we're not, I'm not going to be here tomorrow night. Let's go ahead and celebrate the Passover meal tonight. That, of course, as I've already stated, would be impossible because the Passover lamb had to be slaughtered within the temple precincts and no Passover lambs would have been slaughtered yet because it didn't happen until the next day. So they couldn't have had a Passover without a Passover lamb. So they just couldn't have done That option doesn't work. The second option that people offer is that Jesus and his disciples followed the calendar of the Essenes who lived down at Qumran. Qumran is where they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so this would have put the Passover meal on the Qumran calendar two days earlier than the Judean calendar. So now there's no conflict. They're operating on two calendar systems. They're close. They're getting close to the correct solution to the problem. But there's no indication that Jesus or his disciples had any association with the Essene community down in Qumran. The third solution is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're getting closer here, the Pharisees and Sadducees operated on two different calendars. And for the Pharisees, this Passover would be celebrated one night. There was a one-night difference in the way they observed the calendars. So the Pharisees operated on a calendar that put it one night, and the Sadducees had a calendar that said, no, the 14th and the 15th is the next night. But the best solution is that they computed their days differently. I've already stated that one way to divide time is from midnight to midnight. That's the Gentile way. That was a Roman calendar way. So that's a Roman way. Then the Judeans, we know from various passages in the Scripture, figured it from sunset to sunset. This is stated in Exodus 12:18 that sunset to sunset from the setting of the sun to the setting of the sun and there we go to Exodus 12:18 for that that the feast of unleavened bread was to run from the evening of of uh, Nisan 14 to the evening of Nisan 21st so this is an evening to evening sunset to sunset reckoning And then there is a Galilean calendar that ran from sunrise to sunrise. Now, I know that this is just really thrilling you to study these technical chronological details so early in the morning, but just hang in there. I'm trying to make it as palatable as possible. Sunrise to sunrise. Now, this we see from Matthew 28.1. 
where it says that the women came to the tomb late on the Sabbath as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week. So they're coming just before dawn, early in the morning, 5 a.m. before dawn, and it's called late on the Sabbath. So 5 a.m. on what we would call Sunday is still Saturday, when the, according to the way the women were thinking. Sunday didn't begin until 6 when the sun came up. So they obviously there were some that were operating on a different calendar system, and it, they went from sunrise to sunrise. Now, the best solution to the problem is that both of these were in operation during Jesus' time. The, the Judeans in Judea and the, the, the Sadducees operated on this calendar, sunset to sunset. The Galileans and the Pharisees operated on a sunrise to sunrise calendar. This worked out nicely because when you have 250,000 lambs to sacrifice within a, within a three-hour period, it means now you have two different days to do this and you can cut, cut it down to 125,000. It's a lot easier logistically to do all the, all the sacrificial work. But it tells us that according to a Galilean calendar, and Jesus was with his disciples who were all Galileans, they are, they, their day starts at sunrise so they would eat the Passover meal legitimately based on their calendar on one night and the um, following the calendar of the Pharisees and the Galileans and the Judeans, and they're in Judea, they're in Jerusalem, in Judea, and the Judeans and the Sadducees were operating on a completely different calendar and so they would observe Passover the next night. So that satisfies the difference. It helps us to understand that there's a couple of different calendars working here, and that means that all the typology from the Old Testament, notice how the sovereignty of God has worked to bring all this about, so that uh, Jesus Christ can completely fulfill typology the night before and then be crucified uh, the next day, also in fulfillment of typology on the basis of the other calendar. So by going to a split calendar for the Jews, God is able to almost be in two places at the same time and fulfill all the typology. Our God is a remarkable God of detail. So before the feast of the Passover indicates that Jesus knows before this what exactly has happened, he's in control. He knows that his hour has come that he should depart out of this world to the Father. And we are told that having loved his own who were in the world, because he came, he gave himself, he was incarnate for their benefit, he loved them and continued to love them to the end. Telos can mean to the end of his life. It can also mean to the fullest of his essence or being. And I think both senses are true. We've seen that in John, that John uses a word that can have two different meanings to emphasize that both are true. Jesus loved them to the maximum of his being. And we're told then in verse 2, we get this is all the background information. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart, that is the mind, remember in Greek, as well as in Old Testament terminology, the word for heart is kardia, K-A-R-D-I-A. And it doesn't refer to the physical heart. 
And it doesn't refer to emotions. We've gotten so much to where we think in terms of emotions that, that we think that this is an emotional term. It refers to the innermost core thinking part of a person. Back in Genesis chapter 6, God is, God is going to judge the world at the time of Noah because He says the imagination, the th- literally the thinking of their heart was evil continually. Well, what happens? Where do you think? In your mentality. So that shows us that heart has this idea of mentality or thinking. So Satan is going to introduce some ideas into the thinking of Judas Iscariot, and Judas accepts this as his own. This is demon influence, doctrine of demons, and the idea we're told of specifically came from Judas, I mean from Satan, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Now, Tuesday night we will get into the doctrines of demon influence and demon possession, so I won't go into that in this passage. This, however, has to do more with satanic influence and possibly satanic possession. The devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, this it notice, Jesus already knows that his hour has come, and Judas has already decided to betray Jesus. So these alreadys and the perfect tenses of the verb throw us back to the fact that all of this has already been set in motion prior to their coming to dinner that night. There, everybody's, Judas has his plan and agenda, the devil has his plan and agenda, and the Lord has his plan and agenda. Guess who's in control? The Lord is in control. Verse 3, Jesus knowing, because he knew, it's literally a causal adverbial participle, should be translated because he knows. Notice Jesus is in italics. That means that it's not found in the original. You have to supply it in English here because it's stated, the subject is, of all... in verse 1, but in order to make sure that we don't lose it, the translators have legitimately uh, restated his name here, just so you know who's still performing the action. Jesus, because he knew that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, because he knows the plan and the purposes of God, and that everything is under control, he rose from supper. That's the relationship there. Because he knows this, because there's doctrine in his soul, because he understands the plan of God, because he understands the purposes of God, he understands that a shift has taken place because of the rejection of the people. Now he is going to change from a public to a private ministry and begin to inculcate some doctrine into his disciples to prepare them for the new age, the church age, which was a mystery in the Old Testament. Mystery means it was never revealed in the Old Testament. It was a secret in God's plan. It was never disclosed. But now there are going to be hints of it, and Jesus is going to begin to teach some things about the new age to his disciples in the upper, what is called the upper room discourse, because this is the upper room where they are gathered for the Passover meal. Verse 4 here, we see that Jesus rose from supper, and he laid aside his garments. We know that the Roman soldiers gambled for his robe. He has on a very expensive, tailor-made robe. It is a seamless garment. This is very unusual. It was 
it was one of, a mo- one of the most expensive suits he could have worn at the time. It would be comparable perhaps to a tailor-made Oxford suit today. It was handmade. It was such that usually pieces were sewn together. It was seamless. That's why it was so valuable and the Roman soldiers uh, gambled for it. They wanted it. So he took off this expensive robe. It might have had tassels on it. Might have had some other indication because the Jews did let him come into their assemblies and uh, Jewish as a rabbi, and Jewish rabbis did put tassels and ribbons on the ropes to indicate their position. So it could have been decorated in some way, but he takes this robe off. He's down to just almost like a loincloth uh, wrapped around his waist so that he doesn't get anything on the robe as he as he washes. And by taking off his garments, stripping down to his undergarments and just taking this towel and wrapping it about him, he is dressing now, instead of as an aristocrat with this expensive garment on, he is now dressing as the lowest of the slaves. And he is going to perform one of the lowest functions. In fact, a rabbi would have various disciples, and a disciple of a rabbi would do almost anything for the rabbi, except, according to the Mishnah, wash feet, take on this role of a slave. This was so demeaning that only the Jewish households would hire Gentile slaves to do the foot washing. No Jew would wash the feet of another Jew. So Jesus is taking on the form and the function of a servant. Now, one of the things we have to understand here is the importance of what I call hermeneutical control, interpretational control in the passage. How many times I've heard this passage where they just go so far and they talk about Jesus is showing us how to be a servant. He is, but that's awfully broad. There are, this is an incredibly soteriological passage. Jesus, and we go to Philippians chapter 2 where it says that Jesus, though he was, existed in the form of God, Morphe in the Greek indicating essence or attribute, he existed in the essence or attribute of God, did not think the deity something to be grasped after, but he emptied himself, that's the kenosis passage, that means he voluntarily restricted the independent use of his attributes according to the plan of the Father. He, he, set, he, he, he restricted his attributes and he took on the schisma, the overt form and function of a servant. See, this is what he's doing here. He is, he is demonstrating in a concrete way what he's going to do tomorrow. He's going to take on the form of a servant here and strip down as the lowest of slaves to demonstrate that he is going to do something no one else can do as a servant to benefit all of the human race. That's the dynamic here. And we'll see when we get into a couple of more verses that this is an incredible passage for understanding salvation. There's a dramatic shift here. I mean, the, the drama here is incredible. This didn't happen. Normally in a Passover meal, it, was, it started off with when a woman came into the room and she lit the candles. That, of course, was, was typological of Mary being the one, the virgin conception, virgin birth, who would bring the light of the world into the world. So the woman would come into the room and light the candles, and then they would sit down, there would be a prayer, and then there would be the first glass of wine, the cup of blessing, and then there would be a ritual purification of just the washing of the hands. This was according to Levitical ritual purification because the, the host 
And Jesus takes on the role of the host here, the father of the family, and he would wash his hands and then he would cut the, cut the lamb. He must be ritually cleansed. It indicates purification of sin before he does that. But he, Jesus does not get up and wash his hands. He shifts the terminology. He gets up. He takes off his robe, strips down to his undergarments, wraps his towel around him, and he goes around and he starts washing everybody's feet. The lowest, dirtiest part. Remember, in the ancient world, there's no great sanitation system. That means that everybody dumped their refuse out into the street. The street is where the open sewers in many places. And you walked around and your feet got grungy, dirty, Filthy, and so when you entered somebody's house, normally there would be this servant, especially in the uh, wealthier quarters, that would the servant who would wash the feet so that you wouldn't track the outside grunge inside the house. So this is a very demeaning role, and yet Jesus is demonstrating his humility and obedience by washing their feet. But it is more than just demonstrating uh, an attitude of humility and being a servant. It is picturing his role on the cross where he will as a servant perform the work that cleanses us from all sin this is a portrayal not just of being a simple servant and of love for one another it goes far beyond that it is showing the specifics of how he's going to do this on the next day he rose from supper laid aside his garments taking on a towel he girded it about then he pours water into the basement into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, they're seated at the table. Peter is across from him. John is to his right. Because at one point in this, he is going to whisper to John. And nobody else hears what he says to John. So John has to be close to him. And then the man on his left in the seat of honor is Judas. Because when he puts the sop in the and hands it to to Judas, nobody says anything. And that was standard operating procedure. The head of the table, the head of the family, would take the sop and hand it to his person on his left. And so Judas had to be there. And the conversation between Jesus and Judas, nobody else hears. Conversation between Jesus and John, when he says, you'll know who the betrayer is because I hand him the sop, nobody else hears. So when Judas leaves, everybody goes, where's he going? Why is he leaving? What's going on? Nobody understood. So Jesus gets up, and he probably started with Judas, and he works his way around. He washes the disciples' feet. And he can't, comes to Simon Peter. Simon's across the table, so he would have been the last one he came to. And Peter, in his typical stubborn manner, says, Lord, you going to wash my feet? No, no, we're not going to have this. There's no reason for you to be washing my feet. And Jesus answered and said to him, Now I want you to pay, we're going to come back to this next time when we deal with Judas and whether or not he's demon-possessed, whether or not he's a believer, we're going to ask that question next time. But I want you to pay attention to some things that are going on here in the text and we'll emphasize them more next time. So he came to Simon Peter, he said to him, a singular, third-person singular pronoun, he, Jesus, says to him, Peter, he's talking to one person, Peter says to Jesus, and then Jesus answers to him specifically. He's not talking to anybody else. Verse 7, Jesus says to him, third person singular, Simon Peter, What I do, you do not realize now. And the point he is saying is, is what I do, what I am doing, present active 
indicative of what I am doing, you do not know now, at this immediate time, it's RT as opposed to Nuni in the Greek. RT means right now. Now, it won't be long before you do it. If you'd use Nuni, that has a broader connotation of now. So he's saying, right now, you don't understand this. You don't have the background, but this is important, and you will understand it in the future. You're going to come to understand what all of this is teaching. And Peter then says, Never shall you wash my feet. And he says it in a very strong way. He uses a double negative in the Greek, an ume, which means no not. And in English, a double negative equals a positive, but in Greek, a double negative is emphatic. He is saying no not, and then he intensifies that by saying iona, which is the word for eternity. You will not ever, for all eternity, wash my feet. I mean, he's just being adamant here. Lord, over my dead body are you going to wash my feet. The Lord of the universe that I've already recognized is Christ. You are not about to do this. I can't let this happen. So he's obviously being arrogant, and the Lord answers him in verse 8. If, third class condition, indicating it's up to Peter, it's his volition, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So he emphasizes, again, he uses this verb for wash. He uses the word nipto, N-I-P-T-O. Critical word to understand here, nipto. If I do not wash you, nipto, you have no part with me. And I think that the, this word meros for part also indicates portion or inheritance. I don't think he's talking about salvation to, to Peter at this point. I think, and I, and I can't be dogmatic on this, and I don't want to be dogmatic on it, but I think there's a hint here because he doesn't use, he's going to use two words for washing in the text. He uses nipto and he uses luo, L-U, no, L-O-U-O, that's how it is, L-O-U-O. And this indicates washing, like full body, what bathing. And this is a different word, and, they, and we're going to get into this in a minute to show the difference. Nipto can mean just a, a partial washing, like washing the feet or washing the hands, whereas luo indicates a bath. And later he's going to say, all of you need to be bathed. And bathing, luo, this indicates salvation, phase one, cleansing from all sins, past, present, and future. Nipto indicates uh, forgiveness, uh, phase 2 cleansing, use of 1 John 1, 9. And so when Jesus says this, He doesn't say luo. He says, nipto, if I don't wash your feet, in other words, this would deal with confession. If I don't wash your feet, you have no portion with me. And that would indicate inheritance in the kingdom. And we've studied the doctrine of inheritance, that there are two categories of inheritance. That's what all believers have in common, which is uh, heirs of God, and then a second category of inheritance for those who pursue the spiritual life, joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8.17, that those are two different categories of inheritance. And so Jesus is saying, look, you're going to forfeit your position in the kingdom, and not salvation, but just position in the kingdom. If I don't wash it, of course, then uh, Peter responds. He goes from one end, no, no, not ever, all the way to the other end, Lord, don't just wash my feet but wash my hands and my head. In other words, give me a bath, Lord. Let's go the whole nine yards. And then the Lord has to straighten him out again in verse 10, and this is where the everything comes together. Jesus said to him, 
He who has bathed, and he shifts the terminology here from nipto to luo. It is the uh, present active participle, present, excuse me, present uh, middle participle, or excuse perfect middle participle of luo, meaning the one who has bathed in the past with results that go on. That's the emphasis of the perfect. The perfect tense indicates present results of a past action. The one who has bathed, and it's luo, talking about complete washing, as opposed to nipto, which is partial washing. So Jesus says, he who has been completely washed, bathed, needs only to wash his feet to be completely clean again. Why? Because everything else has already been cleansed, and now the feet need to be be cleansed again because you've been out walking around and your feet have gotten dirty. And then Jesus says, and you are clean, but not all of you. So let's break this down. First of all, to understand what's going on here, we have to look at the pronouns. Jesus said to him, third person singular pronoun. We're talking to a singular person. He who is bathed. Again, it's a perfect middle participle with a indicating a... Um, a singular noun, he who has bathed. It's not a plural, plural pronoun, uh, excuse me, it's not a plural article used there. It's a singular, again, we're talking about one person. And he says, and you are clean. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, singular, but is completely clean. And then he says, and you are clean. And he shifts here to Amy in the third person, Plural. He's quit talking to the one person, Peter, and now he's talking to the entire group of disciples. He says, He who is bathed, he's only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you all, good southern terminology here, you all, y'all are clean. Y'all, and it's not just y'all are clean, it is y'all are completely clean, because it uses the adjective holos, which means whole or complete. And that's the difference. You've got, this is the other key word here is katharos. Verb is katharizo, K-A-T-H-A-R-O-S. It means to be clean, ritually clean, or purified. Now you have it used in two senses. You have it used alone, and then you have it used with the adjective complete. Now what this means is complete cleansing equals justification, what we would call phase one salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be cleansed, you will be saved and completely cleansed from all sin. When it's just used without the adjective, the modifier whole, it's referring to cleansing from sin, post-salvation sins, post-salvation confession, cleansing for sin. So he shifts from Singular to I mean, singular to plural, and he says, "And you are clean, but contrast strong adversative contrast, but not all plural of pos of you plural, but not all." Jesus begins in verse seven in a conversation with Peter, addressed solely to Peter as expressed through the second person singular pronouns and verbs. But by the end of verse 10, Jesus is saying something about the entire group, that they are all completely clean 
But not everyone in the group is completely clean. Completely clean meaning saved. Some of them, at least one of them, is not halas katharos, holy clean. That takes us to point two to understand katharos halas, holy clean. This is a designation of salvation, not a designation of simple forgiveness of sin. So the point I am making that we'll come back to when we look at Judas is that this indicates that at least one person of the twelve has not been wholly cleansed, is not a believer. He says to Peter, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason. And John doesn't want us to miss the point of why he says not all of you are clean. He repeats it for emphasis. Get the point. Wake up. For he, Jesus, knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all y'all are clean. That's southern emphasis. Not all y'all are clean. Somebody is not completely cleansed. Somebody's not saved. Now, we'll come back to Judas next time. Let's see what's going on here. In the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, in Exodus 29, verse 4, we're told about the consecration of Aaron to the priesthood. Aaron was Moses' brother, and he was to be the high priest. And when Aaron and his son Eleazar were made uh, dedicated to the priesthood, they were to be washed. This is one of the few times in relationship to the priesthood that you have this word, Greek word, luo, used, in the Septuagint, in the Septuagint, the LXX, for the 70 rabbis who legend says translated the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek in 70 days, they just the Pentateuch, just the first five books of the Bible, um, use the word luo to translate the Greek word. Now, the Greek word that is found here is rachatz. Looks like this in the Hebrew. R-A-C-H-A-T-Z. And rachatz is the only word for washing or bathing in Hebrew. So in the original Hebrew text, rachatz is used throughout all these passages. But when the Jews translated it to make sure that their readers understood the distinction that was being made, they used two distinct Greek words to translate rachatz. They used luo to translate the rachatz, cleansing of the priest to initiate his ministry. It was a complete bathing. So they used luo, which means complete bathing. Then when it came to his ritual cleansing every time he went into the temple, when all he did was wash his feet and his hands, they used nipto. The word that Jesus is using here. Jesus goes back and forth. He says, you've got to be completely cleansed. The one who is washed doesn't need to be washed again. He just needs to be nipped out. So he's talking about the fact luo here represents salvation, the beginning of ministry for the priest, and nipto represents the cleansing from sin. And in the Jewish ritual, going into the temple, 
you had the outer wall around the temple. You had one gate signifying only one way into the presence of God. Inside you have the holy place divided into the, the holy place and the holy of holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And outside in the outer courtyard you had, the, um, you had first the uh, uh, brazen altar and then secondly the, the laver. And the labor was the huge bowl filled with water. And first the priest would sacrifice the lamb and put the blood on the horns of the altar, which is reminiscent of salvation. Phase one, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be, be saved. And then before he could go into the presence of God, he went to the labor here and he washed his feet and, feet and his hands, signifying that where he walked, sins of overt sins and what he did with his hands, that signified sin. So he had, this whole thing with the labor signifies confession of sin before you can go into the presence of God. Now, before he could even go into the temple, he had to have first been saved, Lua, washing. That's what that indicated. He had to be inaugurated into the priesthood. And then he could have access into the temple. But then every single day when he went in, he had to con- go through confession. So everything that Jesus is teaching here in John 13 has to do with the complete grace provision of God. God has provided our salvation. Jesus Christ went to the cross. There He died on the cross and paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. (coughs) But God's grace does not stop there. God knows that after salvation we're going to commit numerous sins. We may commit the worst sins in our life after we're saved. But the blood of Jesus Christ, 1 John 1, 7 says, continually cleanses us from all sin. That means we cannot lose our salvation. There is nothing you can do that is too great for the love of God or the grace of God. God is omniscient. He knows all the sins in human history. He knew every single sin you and I will ever commit throughout all of human history. You cannot surprise Him. You cannot shock Him. You cannot do something He's unprepared for. He put every single sin on Jesus Christ on the cross so that that sin has been paid for. And if you are worried, concerned, scared about that sin, then you are saying God really isn't omniscient. God doesn't know this cross wasn't sufficient. But the Scripture says He put every sin on Him so that we can't lose salvation. It was imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross. But we still sin, don't we? After salvation, there has to be a way of having that applied in terms of temporal cleansing and post-salvation sins. And that's what 1 John 1.9 is all about. If we confess, admit, acknowledge our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. There's that word again, katharizo, purification. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not just what we named not just what we admitted to God, but for any other sin in our life. At the point we confess some sins, God forgives us of all other sins. And from that point on, we are restored to fellowship with God. And we recover the filling of the God, the Holy Spirit, and we can move forward. And that's what Jesus is teaching His disciples here. He is teaching them about God's love. He has provided everything the believer needs in life. His His the whole act of foot washing here is not simply to show that we are to, to serve one another, but that God has provided everything for forgiveness. That is why when Jesus comes back and talks about this, it's not just talking about serving. Look at verse 15. He says, or verse 14, Jesus says, If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's not talking about just being a servant, just helping each other out. He's talking about forgiveness here. The whole imagery of foot washing 
is to demonstrate what went place, took place at the laver in the Old Testament, which is the application of the forgiveness of God. This is the same point that Paul makes over in Ephesians 4. So we are to forgive one another just as uh, God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. It's the same principle. So Jesus is not talking about just some abstract principle of humility and servanthood here. He's talking specifically about the fact that if we're going to love one another, then the model and the pattern is based upon what God did for us through Jesus Christ, forgiving all of our sins, and that just as God loved us in that remarkable way, we are to take that and apply it in terms of other people, and that is the expression of impersonal love through forgiveness whenever there is sin. And this is the example Jesus gave us, and we'll come back and look at that in detail next time. The point is that God's grace has provided everything. Nothing is dependent upon us. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for your magnificent grace, that you knew everything, every sin, every failure, no matter how much it shocks us, hurts us, no matter how damaging, how extreme, how heinous the sin might be, you knew about it and you poured that sin out on Jesus Christ on the cross. There is no sin that we commit in this life that was unknown to you in eternity past and that was not paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus paid it all. Father, the solution, therefore, is not what we do. It's not based on how good we are, how much money we have, how much money we give, how educated we are. The issue is not how moral we are. The issue is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's uncertain of their salvation, that they would clearly understand that they can have eternal life by simply accepting Jesus as their Savior, believing on Him, trusting in Jesus Christ alone, because He paid the penalty for our sins. Father, help us to understand the dynamics of this passage, the importance of confession, the importance of recovery fellowship, the depth and the breadth of Your forgiveness in our lives, and that this is to be the pattern for how we should forgive one another as we love one another through impersonal and personal love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.